He is a longtime researcher into the causative forces behind major changes in historical development. Now, a great many of us believe that uh, what we are living in is simply the outcome of human endeavors, that we are simply making history as we go, but it seems that there are some hidden players behind the movements of historical events that don't get enough publicity. So I've invited Alan on tonight to talk to us about historical documentation outlining secret societies and orders that, well, behind the scenes control things. So welcome to the show, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. It's fantastic to have you here. Well, Alan, now, the Freemasons, I, I want to start right there with you because here in America we have, uh, well, they just came out with House Resolution 33 to state how, how great the Freemasons were to d bring us this independence. And I was watching a film by Freemason Walt Disney who was hired by Freemason J. Edgar Hoover to control the minds of children through movies. And one of his movies was The Sons of Liberty. And in this film, he showed the Boston Tea Party. And, and never once mentioning that these men were all Freemasons, but it seems that we have been trained in Masonic worship. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, the U.S. was founded on it. Uh, the symbology has never been so open in the architecture and the main buildings, the governmental buildings. And Freemasonry is the religion really of the world. And most bureaucrats from all over the world I've talked to, had all of them are Freemasons. They, they don't seem to advertise this fact, although they act like Freemasonry is the greatest thing that God has ever given planet Earth. And yet, yep. here we have over half of our presidents belonging to a single fraternity, and we know nothing about them. Uh, yeah, and, and they, I think even George Bush was interviewed on TV. It's been shown a few times over on different programs. We were asked about the, the skull and bones and so on, and, and he wouldn't uh, reply. And they can't reply. They can't tell the public what they're all about. Because, you see, the lower Freemasons... Uh, get a lot of perks. That's what attracts most people into Freemasonry. They don't care as much about the, uh, the religion of it. And it is a religion because Albert Pike, who was the Pope of Freemasonry in the 1800s, said it was a religion. Make no bones, he said, this is a religion. And uh, Albert Mackey, who was also the historian for Freemasonry, uh, also said the same thing. This is a religion. But today they go in primarily for the perks they can get. They know that's one thing Masonry does let it known, be known to the public, that if you join it, you will get unmerited favor. That's advancement in jobs. In fact, you might get the job and the guy next to you whose more qualifications will not if you're a Freemason. So you get a lot of perks. And if you have business in an area, all the other Masons must frequent and give uh, you the, their business. So they, they help each other out that way and bypass the mainstream of society. Well, I find myself in this current civilization without the ability to really feed myself. I don't find food very easily. And my house is always threatened to be lost every month. I never know if I'll actually have a roof over my head. And if these guys are designing this civilization, what's it for? What, 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 what is civilization for? Do you know? From their perspective. Well, if you go back into ancient times, they've always had... 
priesthoods to begin with, the upper priesthoods that were open uh, in the control of societies, and below them they always had civil institutions which um, were at different levels or grades or degrees of the institutions. Uh, however, they always had a noble order above the regular secret societies, and it's the noble order that really knows the agenda. These are the old aristocracies of the world, and when you become a serf, for instance, you're knighted uh, by the queen, you, you join a much higher ranking order, and you leave the ones below you uh, behind, and then you're let into the real agenda. Now, masonry uh, copied itself and used the, the, the terminology of architecture and building because they build society, and it's all about building and directing society. Uh, they, they class the world as a temple, as an allegory, meaning that's their building material. They build the temple for each age, and now they're building the fascist one at the top, uh, where, they, where the, those who are worthy to rule over the lessers, that's the majority of the public, will rule. It's a world run by experts and bureaucracies. Well, I've certainly noticed that every corporate logo of a major corporation, their logo can absolutely be brought into the Masonic ritual, uh, the pentagram, the shell, the 66, all of these are, are Kabbalistic symbols and also all equate to the, the rituals of Freemasonry. So I guess uh, we're in a Freemasonic fascist state. We are, and they make no bones about it. And when you realize that the highest Masons in the 1930s, uh, the well-known Freemasons, all used the swastika, the same one as Adolf Hitler used, and their symbology has kind of died down now, but they also used it in Blavatsky's branch when they started up the female branch primarily, they started off this theosophy. They had to get the women in uh, for, for a new, the coming age for the middle classes, and so they invented theosophy, and uh, you find that Annie Besant and those that took over uh, were actually descended. In fact, they were, they were the nieces or the daughters of British aristocracy who had, had uh, titles. They had lordly titles. And so they were not, weren't ordinary people that ran these institutions. They were selected by the aristocracy. And you'll find their fathers were in the Knights Templars of London. Wow. Well, now... Do you really think that they created America to have a free nation? No. No, the United States from its beginning, now let's be honest here, I mean, a bunch of men who were the landed aristocracy of the time, uh, I don't think people realize that the founding fathers had vast amounts of, of land chartered to them by the British crown at that time, and that had already been in the family for a few generations. So they were already given royal charters to have that land, they got together and they pulled the blinds because the Masonic Lodge is a temple with no windows. They pulled all the blinds down, closed the, the windows, put guards on the door, and then gave the people a constitution. Well, the people had no input in that. They couldn't even get into the hall. And so they came out with this constitution. And it's well known now, especially in countries like France and other countries, that, that Franklin and others had already shown that constitution abroad before the American people even heard of it. So it was a well-planned, uh, thought-out uh, agenda, and they presented a constitution to the public. And it was only after uh, much arguments amongst the people, before the people, they even got a Bill of Rights out of it. 
Right, and there were some weird stories along with that as well. I was reading some Manly P. Hall when uh, there was a man inside of the chamber, and of course, like you say, it was locked doors with guards at the doors, and yet this man gave an eloquent speech that inspired them. This is in the minutes of, of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, that this man stood up and gave this eloquent speech that got everybody to rally behind it and sign. At least this is the story. And then when they went to thank this man, he had actually vanished from this locked room. Have you heard this story by Manly Peel? Oh, I've heard that story, yeah. But you find a better one in the diaries and the letters of Benjamin Franklin, because it was Franklin that got up at the table and gave a speech. Ah. And George Washington was sitting on a big throne-like seat at the end of the big long table, and behind Washington's, there's actually a painting of it, behind Washington's head was the sun rising, and uh, Franklin gave the toast to the Grand Master, who would be the Grand Master of the Americas. And so it was, it was well understood it was a Masonic meeting uh, with, for those involved. Now all these men seem and to be if related. If you to the writings, if you went to the writings even in the history, his own diary of Benjamin Franklin, he himself had joined uh, uh, the, the, the English Lodge and a few other lodges, and he, he printed that in his own newspaper at the time when he ran the newspaper. Uh, he had joined all the, the various lodges. And when he was in London, uh, he also joined lodges there as well. And he met, in fact, he even met some of the, the Rothschilds there. Well, let's, uh, now, they're, of course, promoted as a, a uh, foundation of, of morals and, uh, well, I, I'm thinking about all these uh, foundations that, like Carnegie and the Rockefellers, as you had mentioned, yeah. that, you know, promote that they are out here to bring about a better world. Uh, yeah. What do you know about What's these? fascinating. It was fascinating about the foundation. See, the, the, the higher Freemasons, not the little guys at the bottom, but the higher Masons knew the agenda. And that's why they called it the New World Order. It was an order to be based in the New World, uh, in the Americas. Uh, you find long before that, uh, Francis Bacon had written um, The New Atlantis, and that was, that was really what the, the, the future of America was to be, uh, a country that would be run technically by a form of republicanism on the surface of it all for the general public, but reality would be run by uh, secret scientists and intellectuals. And it's really been that way from the beginning. The fascist corporate interests were married with the government from the very, very beginning. It can't be separated at all. Uh, they're intertwined. And on either side of the Congressional Hall, when you watch them uh, giving speeches, on the other side of the president, you'll see the two fasci, one on either side, the symbol of fascism is right there in the hall. That's right. Well, do you think we've ever actually elected a president? No. Yeah, me Personally, no, I don't think so at all. It's all fanfare and uh, balloons and circuses for the public. And uh, they found in Britain, you see, uh, that Britain, uh, they had a concert of Europe in the 1700s before the revolution. Uh, they had a few concerts of Europe, as they called it. It was meetings of the upper elites in all the countries. And after centuries of warfare and looting the public and taxing them for the wars, they realized they couldn't go on like this if they wanted to expand and get a global government. And so they needed a white uh, a knight in shining armor with no history of plundering other countries. And so they invented the United States uh, that had no history and would be the champion of all peoples. 
But in reality, it would be, it would be exactly that. It would be a fascist-type system, always pretending to fight for the good. And if we go into uh, Professor Carl Quigley's book, uh, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American Establishment, which is a fantastic book for filling in all the, back, the blank spots in the histories. Uh, and he was the, he, remember, he was the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, one of the main bodies that's pushing this global government. They drafted up the, uh, every bill that the president has signed for integration of the Americas. And that was put out openly on CBC television in Canada. They drafted up uh, the whole summit of the Americas, uh, the amalgamation of the Americas, and presented it to the countries to sign, which they did. And they owe their allegiance to London for the Royal Institute for International Affairs. But getting back to the foundations, Freemasonry, uh, uh, according to Pike, he said, we shall use every means at our disposal uh, to uh, accumulate vast wealth. Uh, he said, even the stock market, meaning manipulating the stock market, and he says, by accumulating great wealth, we shall become the masters over the masters of the world. And from there, he... Uh, suggested, as did Adam Weishaupt, there was just another branch of the same group, uh, that they would set up big foundations and the foundations would go under the cloak of charities and social betterments. However, really, they were setting up political groups whom they funded and they still do. They fund all the biggest uh, non-governmental organizations who pretend to speak for the people, but no one elects them. Right. No one elects these non-governmental organizations and uh, they demand from government certain laws get passed, and they get their way, because the government's only too happy to oblige. And if you, if you look at it, really, it's the same as the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union, the Soviet means rule by councils. It means councils of non-governmental organizations. And the Soviet Union, the Politburo picked the leaders. Here, we have the big foundations picking and funding the leaders that pretend to speak for us. So they've got this plan. Everybody around just the common man thinks, hey, I see people talking about, you know, getting ready to vote next year and to, to do, uh, you know, their, their life plan and how they're going to have, uh, you know, their dream home in some distant future that they've imagined. And yet, when you start to look at this picture, you start to say, well, wait a minute, you know, that's if they let you have your dream, right? Well, that's what it is, the American dream, isn't it? Yeah. It's only a dream. It and really is. put into uh, actuality because as soon as you get your dream home, now you've got to maintain it, you've got to pay your taxes, it always go up. And now in most cities now, you have street organizations, committees, again borrowed from the Soviet Union, who can inspect your home, decide what color to paint it, and all the rest of it. So you're under the, a form of Soviet system because the same group from London financed both sides of it, the, the capitalist side and the communist side. Now that they've amalgamated the two, as they said they'd do, the Club of Rome actually said, it's a big think tank that works for the London elites, and the Club of Rome said they'd looked at all the systems in the world and they favored the Soviet collectivist system uh, as being the better one to use on the global structure. Now, the Club of Rome came out with a book called Limits to Growth. Yeah, uh, which pretty much said, well, we're going to have to kill off a few of you guys. Now, I was out at the Guidestones, and I saw that it said 500 million people only, and that it was created by C or, uh, R.C. Christian. 
Um, yeah, and what 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 it is is a uh, Christian Rosencruz is, is Christian Rosencross is, is the Rosicrucians, the branch of Freemasonry. That's what I thought. But do you think that? Uh, well, okay. Let me just tell you a little. Just this weekend, we uh, we had some heavy chemtrails, and all of a sudden, I started feeling very lethargic and very euphoric. I really didn't care whether I got up or if I laid down or if I ate. I didn't care at all. But then, the next morning, I got up and my leg cramped up. My roommate came home and he was on crutches because his leg had cramped at work and it actually severely injured him. And then I took the dog out to play with her rock and her leg cramped up. Do you think that these chemtrails are part of a population culling or even just a doping up of the society? Well, I do know that in the big army war colleges where they train the officers, for many years now they've talked about ways of containing riots or panic in big cities. And this was reiterated after 9-11, a few days after, within, within a few days, by, uh, I think it was Rumsfeld, it was shown on television in Canada, and he was asked how will we contain uh, people trying to flee the cities during panic and so on, and he said we have aerosolized um, Prozac and Valium ready to spray over entire areas if need be, and that's when it hit me. I said, my God, they're actually doing it. It isn't just uh, weather modification, although that's part of it, but I'm sh I am certain, to be honest with you, they're also doping the public. Because if you're going to take the public, especially the Americas and the so-called uh, first world countries, down to a lower status, because they have no idea what, what's coming along here, you know. This is uh, I'll do Huxley's Brave New World uh, scenario we're going into. And that's what Rumsfeld was referring to when he says this might be a hundred years war. He wasn't talking just about the Middle East. He was talking about changing the entire culture and the structure of the world and civilization. This is the big one that they're going after. Well, if I were them, I would use every weapon in the arsenal, and it makes perfect sense. You would tranquilize the public uh, during the biggest changes that have ever happened as we go into this brave new world of theirs. We definitely seem to be at a nexus point. Now, the Russians just announced that they, uh, they came out with the father of all bombs, a uh, new super bomb. Uh, it was a vacuum bomb, ultrasonic shock wave that left no contaminants in the atmosphere. And this was to compete with our mother of all bombs, the Moab. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that these guys are... are I mean, where, I just get lost in how anybody can actually believe that we're working towards a civilization. Uh, this is called progress, you understand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is how they define progress. But most of the scaremongering and fearmongering is meant just to terrify the public, is to intensify the fear factor, because they found long, long ago when they terrify whole nations, the people actually submit more to the authoritarian characters that dominate them. We actually submit and, and demand that they help us, and they're very happy to help us with taking your rights away. Well, then, this supposed planned invasion from outer space and H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, yeah. uh, this would fit into that type of scenario. What, what do you know about H.G. Wells? Oh, H.G. Wells, uh, he belonged in a well. I think they dragged him from one. But H.G. Uh, Wells was picked up 
as a youngster and taught by Professor uh, or, or Sir Thomas Huxley, that was the grandfather of Aldo Huxley. And uh, Huxley taught a select few who were to be authors, the main authors of the period for the next 20, 30, 40 years, and trained them all. And they were called the Red, Red Tie School because each member was given a red tie for revolution. And he's an aristocrat teaching the revolutionaries. And you always find this at the top. It's the same aristocracy that give out all sides. So Wells came out of it and immediately shot to fame because they make you a star in this world. You don't have to have talent. They make you a star. And came out with all these science fiction uh, 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 books, and which was to predictive programming, the idea being to enthrall the young people through imagination, but at the same time implant ideas into their heads so that when certain of these things became reality, these, uh, these ways that mankind would go in the future, when it actually happened, you would accept it as being normal, never thinking that there's a thousand ways that humankind could go. Why pick this one? So we're, we're meant to think that everything that's going along here is a natural progression. That's called predictive programming. And H.G. Wells was paid by the British government as a propagandist, even during the wars, um, he wrote Shape of Things to Come, and uh, he also put out uh, the two world wars, two with Germany, one with another one beginning in the Middle East at Basra. Well, that's where the British troops went into Iraq, was at Basra, just coincidentally. And he wrote that uh, before World War One. So he knew the agenda. He was given the agenda. And he also was given uh, a lot of his material from professors from uh, Cambridge and Oxford, and he had to write stories around them and put in the predictive programming at the same time. Uh, you'll find, if you go further back, uh, the Rothschild family had started up uh, the first organization to fund authors, and uh, this was a progression from that particular institution. Today they call it the Futurist Society, and all main science fiction writers you've ever, ever heard of and who get on the bookshelves and end up with movies and so on, all belong to the Futurist Society. And from there, the big think tanks that plan the future, like the Club of Rome, uh, will select authors, tell them to write a story around certain facts, and put in these, these predictive programming elements. And, and that's how you run, that's how you control the minds of the public, mainly through fiction. Right. Well, I can definitely see that in everybody planning their Hollywood, I mean, Hollywood, Halloween costumes. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God, do you not have an imagination of your own? I, I watch everybody planning on being Batman or Jack Bauer. <laughs> it's like, come on, get, a, get an imagination. Hollywood That's is right. just too powerful. Yeah. Well, Hollywood is, and, I mean, Hollywood means the holy wood. And the holy wood, of course, is the grove. That's what they mean by it. Uh-huh. And nothing, nothing is by mistake. And Hollywood, uh, and the Hollywood, that's where they used to take the various drugs and you'd have all your experiences, your imagination would go wild. So Hollywood was set up uh, to be the, the main leaders for giving you your thoughts, uh, for uh, tantalizing you and your imagination, and, and leaving these uh, subliminals and all these implants of possibilities, which are the predictive parts predictive programming. In the 1960s, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, with its American body called the Council on Foreign Relations, got together in London for a two-week conference to decide 
which country would give the world, the, the new world, this global system, its culture, that was music and, and all kinds of entertainment and, and movies. And eventually it was published in the newspapers then that they'd chosen Hollywood to do it. So that's the role of Hollywood, hmm. absolutely. Yeah, it seems like movies like V for Vendetta are trying to channel people into a vengeful state and make them want to blow up things. Yeah, and I was kind of disappointed with the movie because anyone who was straight in the movie was somehow uh, part of the system, or, or they were very stupid. Right. You know? It was uh, uh, so uh, I don't know why they put that in that way at all, uh, because I, I know that some of the people at the top um, are just the opposite. They run this show, uh, and so uh, yeah, all the movies that they have uh, are meant to either stir you up or even tantalize you again into it, because I've had youngsters who've asked me, uh, if we get into the matrix, when they chip our brains, can we actually fight it from within? They think they can, right? because that's how it happened in the movie. And I tell them, once you get a brain chip, you didn't make the programs for that computer or that chip. Uh, so, so you, whatever you choose is in the program. You could never beat it. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems like bringing on a plague would probably be the best way to get everybody chipped. Uh, absolutely. I think that's the way it's going to go. I personally believe that because... Um, now, the Club of Rome, again, as the premier think tank that dishes out its ideas to lesser think tanks to who then put it into story form or uh, get out to the magazines, get it on uh, little documentaries on television, that's all from the Club of Rome, that's the top one, the top of the pyramid for that particular part of the agenda. And in their own book, in their own book published in the 1970s, the two founders of the institution, um, now remember again, this is the, these are the ones who want to depopulate the planet on behalf of the elite. But the club of these two leaders in the Club of Rome, the book was called The First Global Revolution, uh, said they'd looked around for different methods to unify mankind because mankind can only do, basically go along with an agenda under warfare. Uh, so under war, we pull together, we do what we're told, to get great things done because they can tax like crazy. And they said, we thought about different ideas. Now, they'd already come up with a space alien idea. Could that be pulled off through enough science fiction and get the ideas into folks' heads And uh, as a possibility? And they sort of dismissed that eventually. And then he said, we looked around and they said, we decided uh, that global warming would suit the bill. And so we could blame the public for causing the global warming and then institute all the, the, the various bureaucracies that would take charge of the world to save mankind because man himself would be made to be the enemy. Right. That's from their own book. Well, they're definitely promoting that we are a virus on this planet. But now at the same time they're talking about global warming, they're building ionospheric heaters. Yes, and they're using the, the HARP technology every day now. They have been for the last oh, six or seven years, 24 hours per day. And it creates standing waves, which creates tremendous heat in the atmosphere, bounces off the ionosphere. And if you look at the United Nations Treaty for Weather Warfare, signed in the 70s, they admit right in there that those with the HARP technologies, like the one in Alaska, that's only one of over 50, there's 54 or 57 of them that wow. we know of, um, they said that any country can create earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, or famine uh, in those particular, and even tsunamis. That's all 
what HARP itself can do, that kind of technology. Now they're using them in, in sequence uh, together and they can triangulate different HARP facilities worldwide, bounce it off the ionosphere and cover a whole continent anywhere in the world if they want to. And for the Nighthawks like myself, I've, I sat out the back a couple of months ago one night when I thought it was a storm coming along and I watched this rippling light go along just like strobes going across the sky from south to north huh. and it lasted for about four hours long and this is the harp technology, the pulsar wave uh, scalar technology being used. And with all these godlike abilities, do you think that they might do a fake Armageddon, a fake apocalypse? I've no idea. They're already doing it, really, although it's all wag the dog right now with all their, their terror drills. And uh, they have now done, in some big hospitals, in the, like Michigan, and places in Michigan, they've already done test drills for getting people through decontamination tents uh, and uh, taking flu shots and so on. They're doing the same thing down Phoenix Way and Portland, Oregon. So, and it's also a worldwide exercise, by the way. And all of these agencies, including the civilian agencies they set up quietly in the 1990s, uh, are working with them to collect data on the public. And I do suspect, and I've said this, they would use extra tranquilizers during this period and have observers in the field to see how easily it is to, to manipulate the public, get them to stop their cars, uh, get out, be searched, all this kind of stuff. Huh. Yeah, I definitely felt euphoric and lethargic. It seems like we live in a zoo, you know, like we're in a habitat of some sort, and it's not really... We're in a I, cage. You know, yeah, we're in a cage. <laughs> yeah. And, and our zoo and, you know, you're not the only person who's complained about the... I get calls all the time from all over, and I, always, I do notice it's always in the same days that people are feeling so tired and can't keep their eyes open, and yeah. it's the same thing, yeah. Huh, so that's worldwide, huh? Yeah. Wow. And euphoria, too, when you think about it, euphoria, you see, is the effects of tranquilizers. Uh, when bad things could be happening, you make you euphoric or, or you couldn't care less. Yeah. And I've, I've also noticed people, uh, when, the, when the spring uh, slows down or stops for a week, people get agitated. They'll phone me and they'll tell me they haven't had spring for a week and they're agitated. Well, if you're getting constantly drugged, and you have that stopped quickly, you get withdrawal symptoms. Once the spraying starts again, it tops up your blood level and you're, you're back to where you were. <laughs> People actually jonesing for chemtrails. That's a... Yeah. Well, now, I just went on a little tour of America and I filmed all of the phallic symbols and the hermaphroditic symbols. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know anything about this? I found penises and vaginas all over the place. Oh, yeah. You, you'll find them going back all through time, not just in America. In fact, some old churches in Ireland have it over the, the vagina, over the, the, the arch and the entrance door. Uh, so, again, it's all ancient because all these religions came from the, the old mystery religions that, that have never disappeared. They simply go into societies with secrets, as they call themselves. And um, if you go through the, along the border of Canada and, and the U.S., or get a book out or go on the internet and look at all all the stones that mark the border that are all obelisks, they're, they're Masonic obelisks, every one of them, right across the whole length of the continent. And that was an agreement that came between the Masonic Masons in Canada and the Masonic Masons in the U.S. 
Well, what do you think about that hermaphroditic symbol? The hermaphroditic symbol has various meanings. And, however, the odd thing is they've always talked about the perfection of the human being. And, and I'm talking about the higher mysteries above even uh, most of the, the noble orders. But they've always talked about the perfection of the human being. And if you'd only perfect humankind, uh, and, and see what they mean by that is the, the cessation of all conflict that's between everyone, including male and female. Hmm. And of course, the, the lesser mysteries are going to the left side of the brain, right hand side of the brain, and so on. But um, when you look at what they're really looking at for the future, they're looking for a worker breed that's going to be perfected. And this is, again goes into Aldo Huxley's Brave New World, and he, he basically backed all that up, that it could be done scientifically. And his following book, uh, Brave New World Revisited, the nonfiction book, and he was all for it because he worked for Tavistock Institute, mm. and uh, he witnessed many of these experiments with wires and people's brains and all the rest of it back in the 1950s, and he knew the agenda, and they've always wanted this uh, this worker group as a transitory stage between what we are today as humans, male and female, and then the, the, the breed that would come after, which would be cloned type. And I can foresee the time where they will create a creature. You see, they, they see marriage as very messy and, and a, a nuisance. And they don't like women at all. They really don't like women. Really? They, they, they don't like emotion. Emotion is too disruptive. It causes conflicts in the home. The man doesn't work properly. All of these things. And so they, they see that the female as, as really a nuisance. And, but they want something that can reproduce itself. So you're going to have the kind of hermaphroditic type uh, brought forth in the future. I've no doubt, too, one of these uh, cloning facilities will eventually present one to the world, and then they'll, they'll dig up all the old sci-fi books with the rights of the new types of humans. We've already been predicted, or, or gone along with a lot of this kind of stuff through science fiction, and we'll have, and we'll have debates on television. Do they have the same rights as us or not? And, right. and there's even lawyers getting ready to take courses in all of this kind of stuff. Um, it's going to be a big, big business for lawyers. Of course, they always win. And uh, I can see the day where if you serve the world system as a good servant, uh, then you're right. Your, your crowning uh, achievement will be to have permission to reproduce yourself. Right. That, will be your, that, that will be how it's done, I think. And I go back to the writings of Plato in the Republic, and he talked about the guardian class to which he belonged that was the upper elite, and he talked about this future utopia to come, for the elite, a utopia, that is. And he said, they have the guardians, then you have the guardians' helpers, some drawn, the more intelligent ones drawn from the its, because everyone who's not interbred specifically uh, with arranged marriages is called an it. You're called a commoner in English. You call them its. But he says, we can breed them uh, just like you breed animals for specific purposes, and he said, if you want tall people to pick apples, you'll breed tall people and keep inbreeding them. And if you want minors, you get little squat guys, married to little squat women, and, and their offspring will be little squat minors. Uh, so just like they've done with the pedigree dogs and so on, they were quite confident that, that through the understanding of nature, as they used to couch it in the mysteries, uh, which meant science, that they could conquer this and create new types of humans to serve them better. Uh, humans without free will, though, that's the big part of it. You won't be able to 
perceive of yourself as an individual. Right. I would explain. Now in Australia, they've done uh, this. Now Australia is on the same kind of national health service as we are in Canada, which is minimalistic. Uh, it's just pretty bad, actually. You wait forever if you can get a doctor, and uh, you'll be dead before you get to even seen. <laughs> but in Australia, they allocated millions of dollars towards uh, an idea to see if they could make a, a man pregnant. Really? And they created an artificial womb in one fellow, and I heard they've done a second one now, and to see if they fertilize an egg, put it in this artificial womb they've created. Now, why on earth would we be spending that kind of money on a, if we have a system that you can't even get an appendix removed? Why would you be spending that kind of money uh, to do something like that that's not necessary until you go into the agenda of the elite, as I say, and the creation of new types of humans? for specific purposes, they call it ideal design. That's what they mean by that. Wow. Yeah, I can just hear uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, it's not a tumor. <laughs> that's right. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. They <laughs> put that one so, in the yeah, movie already. Yeah, we, we, we've had a lot of programs like that, along that, that, that way, uh, putting that idea there, and uh, one day they will bring forth something that can reproduce itself. Now, they, they could also do it with uh, even... Uh, giving you an injection down the road that will enable an hermaphrodite to reproduce itself. And I watched a two-hour documentary put out by NASA, and it was narrated by David Suzuki, who's one of the, the flower boys of the United Nations. He's a geneticist who does all the wildlife programs for the, the young and brainwashism. A man who's also said that they'd have to kill off millions of people in the world to save the planet. Nationally on television, he said that. Wow. Uh, but he, 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 was, he was a narrator for this two-hour documentary special from NASA, and they talked about all the problems with interstellar flight to go off and mine the planets. Mm -hmm. And uh, they talked about that the, maybe they'd have to create a new type of human that could be basically hatched along the way. And I've, I've no doubt they're talking about something that could also be, reproduce itself if necessary. So that they, that's already discussed long ago at NASA. I remember when Ra'el stood before Congress and talked about cloning humans. <laughs> Here was the ambassador of our extraterrestrial gods wearing a Star of David with a swastika in the middle of it saying that we will clone yeah. humans and I already have. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah. I'm sure he's funded by the same institutions uh, that put these ideas out there and get the followers to, to go along with it. Because you see, as a eugenics program as well, we, the group that run the world openly today are, are really into eugenics big time. They, they always have been. And we'll find, again, big players like Bertrand Russell, Wells himself, and uh, prime ministers and presidents of the United States uh, were big into eugenics. And Rocker, the Rockefeller Foundation funded and started off the American Eugenics Society, where they, they put out a magazine every month on the perfect families that should be able to breed. And then they had all this uh, degrading stuff about the, the families, the lesser types who should not be allowed to breed. And they sterilized thousands of people all the way down into the 1970s in the U.S. because of this particular group. And they do believe, um, like Charles Galton Darwin in his book, The Next Million Years, the guy who was the grandson of Charles Darwin, um, he was a physicist, this man, in the 1950s. He put his book out, and he said that our main worry is that the, the commoners will outbreed the intellectuals and overrun them 
and, and then he comes out with all these formulas to to basically get rid of them, including uh, putting steroids or or um, uh, uh, sexual hormones into their their food, their water, or even attacking their ability to reproduce through inoculations. What do you think it's so going to wake people up to to have them stop trusting these overlords that we have? Yeah. What, what do you think would wake people up? I mean, to get them most around people, to the fact that government is not, not there for their night. benefit. I'm sorry. Yeah, th th that's the problem. Most people are conditioned. They're products of their conditioning. And Aldo Huxley explained in Brave New World Revisited, uh, and the talk he gave at Berkeley University, which is on my website, if anybody wants to download it in the audio section, um, you'll hear him saying that he sees no reason why a scientific um, system or dictatorship could not rule the world forever. And he talked about uh, a scientific indoctrinations as did Sir Ber uh, Lord Bertrand Russell. Uh, Bertrand Russell talked about their ability back in the 1920s because he was given charge of special uh, education schools by the Crown. The Crown gave him charters to open up these schools and test children for experiments. And uh, Lord Bertrand Russell said, we, now he's talking in, on behalf of the aristocracy that owns the wealth of the planet. He said, we used to think, now this is not Karl Marx talking, this is the aristocracy. He says, we used to think we'd have to take the children from the birth mother at birth and so that the child would never know their parents to bring them up uh, free of contaminated ideas, old-fashioned ideas like marriage and so on. He says, but we have found uh, that through putting them into kindergarten at the age of two and giving them scientifically designed indoctrination, when they go home at night, any input from their parents will be basically cast aside. So they already knew that in the 1920s. And as I say, this was not Karl Marx talking. These are the, this is the aristocracy from England that helped fund the Russians and the Soviet Revolution. Astounding. Well, now, uh, we've talked about New Atlantis. We talked about Plato. Do you think this story goes back uh, to the time of Atlantis? Does it go beyond this current historical period that we're living in, do you think? Uh, it, goes, it definitely goes back to, to some, some new beginning somewhere. Uh, definitely an idea was hatched. Now we get little references of previous ages in old religious books, for instance. And much of it is mythology. Much of it is put out off by the, the priesthoods themselves. But we do know that... Um, for instance, the, if you go into the Hindu histories, which are apparently, or they claim, are much older, um, they do talk about experimentation with different types of humans, uh, especially in the Black Sea area, which was a valley at one time. And they said that eventually those that did the experiments flooded the valley to kill the different kinds of humans that they tampered with, basically, because these humans be ended up eating each other. That was so... It, it almost looks like there's been, uh, been experimentation in the past. And, of course, I'm not talking about science fiction as far as UFOs and all this kind of stuff crowded in. I personally think the world is far older. I think, I think the Hindus are right with that. The civilization is much over older. It's, and even, even Plato talked about this. He said that when his... Uh, 
great uncle Solon had gone to Egypt for the histories of Greece, and the Egyptians told them, "You don't even know how older you, how old you people are," and, and uh, they went into the different civilizations that had existed long before, that risen and fallen and vanished, and so I've no doubt that humankind is much, much older. And all the Darwinian stuff that was put out there uh, as an attempt to give a beginning to man was really a red herring. It was a false, uh, you know, a false lead to put us all off track. Yeah. Uh, we're far, far older. And when you go into Egypt, for instance, and you look at how well they had understood the stars and the travels of the planets and so on, and the constellations and yada yada, all the stuff that we take as normal today. They had the lunar, the solar, and the, and the stellar cults or priesthoods that had all this well mapped. Well, to do an experiment, if you were to watch and see for 25,500 years that the great zodiac, as they say, uh, uh, went round its course, you'd have to wait another 25,000 years to, to see if it happened again exactly the same way before you could say, well, there's an empirical experiment. We studied it for 50,000 years. Uh, it tells you that, that civilization, as far as intellectual obs observation and noting of these things, was on the go uh, 50 odd thousand years uh, before 7000 BC. So 57,000 BC for sure. Yeah, it was a Freemason, Colonel Weiss, that gave us the dating of the pyramids, the fraudulent dating of 3500 to Khufu. You know, these Freemasons are wily. Well, Weiss himself was a, was a con man. He was caught by the Royal Society that helped fund him, uh, forging inscriptions on the pyramids and inside the pyramids and everything else. Uh, he was a, a real fraud for sure and a con man. So there's nothing that he comes out with that he can take for granted. And yet the History Channel still says, oh yeah, back in 3000. What? Do you think now they just had this uh, supposed bomb threat against uh, Putin, and uh, you know they, they, they've come up with their new father of all bombs? Albert Pike seems to have mentioned a World War III. Do you think we're there? Yeah. Do you think that this is? We are next? going through it. We, we are going through it now because if you understand what a war is, and you've got to go back to the 1930s to understand what they, what they mean by total war. Total war was a concept that the British military academies first came out with at Sandhurst. And they took in foreign, uh, foreign members to come in and be taught this. And the guys who ran Hitler's army also went there to study total war. Up until World War I, primarily, uh, wars were between mercenary groups or at least um, established armies fighting on battlefields. And they left the civilian populations alone. Uh, then they came up with the idea of total war, where all of civilization, all civilians are part of the war. Then you go into Carl Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope, an Anglo-American establishment, and he says right there, he says, war, one of its main intentions is to change society. All sides of the war after society has changed, because government takes over so many institutions during war, which they never let go of. And he said, we can get more done in five years of war on a social scale, that means social changes, than 50 years of peace and propaganda. So we're in the war now, and right now, we're giving up all our rights that have been taken away from us, 
everyone is suspect, whoever the government says you are. You're, 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 Bush has declared openly that anyone speaking out against the war publicly can have their homes confiscated and businesses and all the rest of it and thrown in jail. Um, anyone within this continent right now under the anti-terrorism laws can be thrown in jail indefinitely without charges and left to rot. And we're, we are in the middle of the war right now. It's happening. It's here. This is what war is about. It's total war. The war is on the civilian population of the entire planet. Right. Well, it's always been my belief that creative play, you know, the real heart of the human is what's necessary to turn things around. I really, after looking at all this, uh, don't believe legislation and new, you know, what are we going to do, come up with a new foundation? I really think that the heart of the problem is in our own spirit, in our own creative play that is being just yep. downtrodden. I mean, it's being stepped upon. Creative play doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't, and you have to wonder, as the ancients used to do, how many people actually have something called spirit in them when you see that their conditioning has taken so well with them. And they do talk about, like Brzezinski said, uh, he said all the public will do shortly or will be able to talk about is that their conversations will be based around what was downloaded into them on the previous night's television. Well, that's happened with most people. We're there. They're oblivious of, of what's happening to their own lives, and yet um, they're unable to talk about it. They don't even see it. No, they don't. We are there. They... We are there, yeah. And so the science indoctrination has actually been successful. Yeah. They are doing a very good job. And as I watch all of the programming come out of everybody's mouths and I watch as they dress up as Guy Fox, you know, I'm just, uh, come on, people, see this, Can you see this. But then they ask me, you know, well, okay, once we see it, what's, what's the solution? Uh, I've often tossed out synchronicity. Uh, I believe that there's a divine force as well as just this um, political mechanization. And I don't think they're uh, omnipotent. I think that there is a higher force that could easily be attracted by our very actions, that it's our actions that would bring about a miraculous change. Yeah, there's got to be, number one, the will. And the will itself right now amongst the general population is incredibly sluggish. It's hardly moving at all. Uh, they have been socialized to the extent that everything's laid on for them, their entertainment's laid on, their conversations are laid on, they talk about what's on television or sports or something, and, and that's that. Uh, so there's got to be will to, to change. Now, you can't go backwards into the system because it belonged to the same group. It was their ancestors who, who ran the older system, the same aristocracies. And so you've got to find a different way to go. And the choice right now is to go down their way happily, playing ourselves uh, into oblivion, because that's what's designed for us once we get all these chipping uh, done to us and so on, uh, and lose all rights that we ever thought we had, that we didn't really have, we were given them temporarily, and, um, or, or else we go a different way. And we can either go into this inhumane, psychopathic way which, which the elite uh, have given us, because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog system out there, the psychopaths have uh, always give you a psychopathic culture where you have winners and losers, and for every winner's seat, there's a, a 10,000 losers. 
we call that natural and normal. That's not normal at all. We're becoming inhumane to each other. We watch people getting blown up all over the planet, and we don't care as long as it's not us. That's not humanity. And when you don't care about other people and other lands getting blown up, um, you don't realize that you've lost your ability for self-preservation because eventually the monster that eats them will come round to you. Yeah. There's certainly no way we can solve our personal problems without solving global problems. It just yes. will never work. And uh, again, all the lies we've been told. Now, we know from the New American Century a group that, that's actually in power now, but they published their own their own private institutions groups, uh, uh, views back in the 90s. Twice they did it, the early 90s, and then they republished it in 97 when they redid it under Wolfowitz. And they said that they would go into the Middle East and they would, they would take Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran and Syria and so on. Uh, because this establishment, this psychopathic establishment, came to the conclusion a long time ago, and we go back to the, the Royal Institute for International Affairs for this, which really was just a front for the British crown, and the empire, they, 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 they decided then that they would allow no other type of culture or way of life to survive on this planet. Everyone must come into the same culture under the same order. And so any culture that's different at all was to be obliterated or they would, they would be forced to join one of the two. Those unable to adapt would simply be wiped out. And if you go back into earlier writings of the, the, the top economists for the crown, and the British East India Company, Sir John Stuart Mill and others. Uh, he, Stuart Mill back in the 1700s said, uh, and he laid out the list of the peoples they would have to wipe out. And he had, he had the black people of Africa. Um, he also had the, the, the American Indian uh, schedule for it, and even Irish as well. And that was reiterated by H.G. Wells in his history book called Outlines of History, Volume 1 and 2. Uh, he, he put the same categories of people that would be unworthy to come into a next civilization because under the Darwinian laws, any primitives, as they call them, that are brought into a new uh, civilization would help destroy the, 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 the new. It wouldn't get off its feet, so they'd have to be destroy the primitives. And that's what they're going under right now. Adapt or die, according to the Darwinian theories. They knew the American Indian could not adapt very well to the white man's 8 to 5 or 8 to 10 as it was at that time and uh, the African was different too and so they had them slated for extinction. Adolf Hitler took up the same categories of people um, and, and went after also Jews and Gypsies and Slavs. So it's the same group at the top though that run the world and uh, the stone power today. Well, thank you so much Alan for all this information. It is so important and hopefully, you know, it seems like it's, it's very overwhelming, and that's why I'm looking for a miracle, because I don't see a, a path out of this. Uh, but I'm definitely uh, one of those people that's not intending to adapt to this new society. Well, as long as there are people like yourself and, and myself who, who can still think, I always say there's hope that we can think and still yes. speak. And now that we can still speak, we've got to use it, uh, that ability, because it won't last forever. These guys mean business, and we must uh, demand the rights back yes. in, instead of uh, allowing them to be taken away. Absolutely. Well, if you'd like to get more information, check out Alan Watts' website, cuttingthroughthematrix.com. 
He has some very great interviews on there, uh, audio downloads, video downloads, and articles that he has written. How long have you been doing this now, Alan? Well, as, as far as uh, openly, uh, it's been about 10 years. Wow. Do you? <laughs> That's amazing. And only because I know it's the last chance we have, we have to speak now. Right. That was pretty much where I was at and put me here in front of, in front of this camera here. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, what are we going to do at this point but <laughs> shout it out to the world, right? We've got to, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, I hope pleasure. to talk to you again in the future. Will do, sure. Give me a call. I will, absolutely. And next week we're going to have uh, Eric John Phelps on talking about Vatican assassins and uh, get a little into the, the popistry. <laughs> Look at a little deeper into that picture. And um, at this point, all I can say is with all this data that Alan has outlined for us and given us all the documented evidence to show us that our world is completely and totally manipulated and that these dreams are false, these ideas that we have that we think we can change or even get our own personal feet on the ground, your, your foundation does not exist. It's owned and operated and rented to you by these foundations and secret societies who have been controlling this situation from day one and pitting groups against each other. So try to keep this in mind and try to find your own true will yourself. And please, if anything, just start talking to other humans and telling them that we need to find ourselves a new will, <laughs> a new Bill of Rights. And so until next week, have a good night. We'll see you then.